Welcome back to Season 2 of Grit. We start off with a special extended version because we just had so much to talk about. From Hollywood development deals to boxer shorts, storyteller Dave King has lived an exciting and creative life and really knows a thing or two about what grit is. So let's hear all about his adventures. So now we're jumping down to Oslo to speak to Dave King, who is difficult to define. He's a comic book <laughs> artist. He, he's a, a director, an animator, a, a storyboard artist. Dave, you're, you're too many things. <laughs> it, it, it's it's always been my problem in life. People say, you know, Dave, you're difficult to define. But I suppose you also can just say, well, I'm Dave King. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's enough. That's all you need to know. <laughs> for the audience it's kind of i mean you have you've had you've had a fascinating career working across multiple mediums you've worked mm. in comic books you've worked yeah. in animation you've worked in live action yeah you, you've worked in uh, uh books i mean you, you you've kind of done the and documentary um so- documentary newspapers uh fashion you know i it's it, 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 <laughs> it, it's just as well that I, I subscribe to the theory of, you know, it's it's about the journey, not the destination. So I, I think what that kind of brings about is obviously you have a very strong uh, creative fire burning. And yeah. I'm kind of interest, I'm interested what 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 sparked that. I, I, it's very it's very easy for me to identify what sparked it. Um, it was my my upbringing and my family life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the in the sort of mid to late 1960s in London, and uh, I, I I always had comic books and film magazines around in the house. My reading material was a as a you know my preschool reading material was Superman comics, Ladybird books, and and famous monsters of Filmland. I, I I guess I was what was what's affectionately known as a monster kid of the 1960s. Universal studios with their their sort of famous uh catalogue of horror movies from the 1930s and 1940s they re-released that entire stable of of movies to television in the 1960s which gave all of these characters you know dracula frankenstein creature from the black lagoon the mummy it it gave these characters a a completely new lease of life and it, it launched uh an insane marketing program with these characters. There were toys and model kits and magazines and books, most of which I had. Uh, my 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 bedroom is was typically as a child was typically like one of these you see in something like Stranger Things, you know, where you see the kid, the geek kid with the the monster kits model kits all lined up against the wall i mean that was i had planet of the apes wallpaper (laughs) which (laughs) i think says a lot about my development is Uh, that a kind of that kind of really leaning into that kind of fantastical world there was a big pop culture explosion of this in the 60s and and continued into the 70s yeah was that also like growing up in in south london is that a kind of form of escapism as well because south london was was a very urban and ordinary place yeah it's a very ordinary place i mean i was always the outsider because i was the only kid who was interested in this stuff i mean a very i come from a very very ordinary working class background you know growing up in 
blocks of flats in the middle of South London in the kind of grey 1960s that exploded into the colourful late 60s and early 70s. And all of this stuff was around me, you know, Beatlemania, you know, the end of the 60s and flower power and psychedelia. I mean, obviously, I was very young when this was happening, but I was very, to grow up in London when it was possibly the the, the most incredible cultural centre on earth. It was a very, very prolific time for creativity in the UK, and London was the centre of it. Yeah, and I think all of this stuff just fed in. I mean, music was a huge part of my upbringing. My, my folks were both very into buying records, uh, and, they, and the radio was on constantly. And so all of the, I, th- I think all of this stuff just, you know, Beatlemania and Dalek mania. So, you know, all of this stuff was just pouring into me. And then you must have hit an age sort of towards the late 70s when this small little cultural event happened in sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I know you're referring to Star Wars. <laughs> that in itself is a mashup of so many things, and it's almost like you—you that—that to me is like what you're describing. There's almost getting to the pinnacle of that. And that Ab- being- absolutely, Star Wars was uh, a major tipping point for me. Yeah. I uh, reading all of these magazines and things, you know, uh, imported magazines from the US that, that that would crop up in in the UK. I was aware of Star Wars while it was in production. Early news snippets were kind of coming out about it. It seemed to be a synthesis of everything I'd grown up loving mm. in terms of, of, of sort of my creative reading body. And so I did. I traveled up on my own to the West End and went to the opening night of Star Wars. And I just remember sitting there during the film and like a little switch clicked over. I'd always, I'd always drawn all the way through primary and junior school, encouraged by, very much encouraged by my parents. And my mum had some artistic talent as well. So I'd always been creative during primary and junior school. But sitting there on that night watching Star Wars, a, a little switch flipped over and it said, I want to do this. I want to be the person who puts these stories out for other people to read and be involved in this storytelling in some way. It absolutely changed the path of my life that night because I, I sat there and said, I want to do something creative with my life. If I, It so affected me that I knew I, I just at that moment watching it, I was like, right, this is something here will be my career. I can I can almost see JJ Abrams filming your biopic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. you know big swelling of Michael Giacchino's music score. You know the crowd is in tears at this point, definitely. <laughs> so so then you must have just gone right. This is what I'm going to do. But uh, and, and and was it a case of or people? People like me, people like us, don't do that. Like, because like, there's, yeah. there's no, there's no lexicon of like you don't have an uncle that does it. So, no, so nobody, absolutely nobody. I mean, growing up in 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 South London where I did, there was nobody who worked in the creative in or not in 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 my sphere. There was definitely nobody who worked in the creative industry. And I went to at that point. I was I was attending uh, a grammar school. Yeah. It was it, it was quite a bizarre school. It was very much like something out of Harry Potter. I, I remember going to see my careers officer once, and it was in this dusty 
chalk dusty tiny room at the end of a long corridor and I sat down and and you know my my work was full of creativity and it was quite clear what direction I was going in and this creaky old guy behind the desk sat there and said I mean he didn't say much to me but there was there was a lot of harumphing as he looked through my work like this and it was a little it was a bit terrifying and then he he looked up at me and he said yes he says I think what would do you good is a little stint in the army (laughs) to this day yeah i dread to think what what would have befell the british army had i have joined it you you could have you could have avoided probably some some terrible uh uh, i'm just thinking like falklands iraq (laughs) (laughs) no no boys don't go to war make this film instead let's make a science fiction film um and thankfully my my school there was a fantastic art teacher there uh, Roger Ellsgood, if if you're out there, I know you're still alive and around, but if you ever hear this, uh, you know well that I have a lot to thank you for. Uh, he took me completely under his wing, made me see that there were no barriers to what I wanted to do, except for the ones that I erected in my own mind. He showed me just that there were possibilities and that it didn't matter that I was some kid from a, a, a housing estate in South London. It didn't matter. My creativity was what mattered. My drive and my resilience were what would count if I wanted to make a career from, from my creativity. I think my, my thinking had been quite geeky in terms of my creativity by that point. And he opened it up to a kind of wider form of creativity, you know, sort of bringing in a lot more music and photography and art and graphic design and things that I hadn't really thought of before. Yeah. Okay. So he was a bless Roger Ellsgood because he was a he was a, a major influence and a, and a major conduit through being a kind of somebody who would. Ru- write and draw at home for creativity towards some towards being a young man who actually realized there was a way to to a career with these things that I could do so it was a it was a very important time for me and I I think that's so, so important isn't it to have somebody that kind of curates some stuff like here's some good stuff you should have a look at but not not, yeah. not say you yeah. must do this on the curriculum, but just say here's here's some stuff that I think you'll like, and then yeah. nurturing uh, the talents or, or the passions you already have. A mentor rather than a teacher. He took me to my first art gallery show, but as you say, as you absolutely rightly say, it wasn't done in a in a in a stifling educational. And here, like, exactly as you say, here are some things. I'm going to nudge you in the direction of, and you can then take what you want from those things and add them to your creative palette. Because that's great when someone does that. Did you? Did, what's always difficult is you get you, you get these kind of uh, Robin Williams and Dead Poet Societies people in your life. Yeah, yeah, they they open up this sort of huge. And I had I had a teacher. I had a couple. I was lucky. I had one at high school and one at university who did that. Yeah. 
but there always then seems to be an army of other people who are like, no, let, let's put that all back in the box. Absolutely. And I, I encountered them very, very quickly because uh, <laughs> uh, I went to um, I went to St. Martin's School of Art. Very prominent art school for those who don't know. I did my foundation on the old uh, at the old Charing Cross Road. They were very nice people, but they were the complete opposite to Roger Ellsgood. I was not the right person for that for that place at all. I was the I was the the right person at the wrong time. I think. Yeah, because I suppose a few a few years later there was a bit of a sort of pop culture explosion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was a few years ahead, and they were not at all interested in me as a comic book artist, and and they didn't know how to encourage what I did. I mean, they wanted to they wanted to pigeonhole me as as either an illustrator or a graphic designer uh neither of which i am and and thankfully there were several other students on the course with me who who also felt disenfranchised by what was going on and so we it was very precocious we actually we said you have to set a new course up for us and so they did they had a they had a fine art film course there which was essentially, you know, students all in black being given an eight millimeter camera with black and white film. And they would go out and film a set of traffic lights for 12 hours, you know. And right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's absolutely not what we wanted to do. We 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 had a much more commercial uh, sensibility with our filmmaking. And we will work. We we very quickly ended up working with clients, you know, in a very kind of real world scenario. We were we had budgets to make films, and most of which was not. I'm, we had some help from some of the teachers, but most of it was done off from the students' own volition. They would go out and find their own contacts and bring projects in. And I mean, I, I can't say that it was a completely invaluable experience for me because once we got going uh you know I learned to edit on this course and that was on the big old steambacks you know it was yeah, yeah, yeah the flatbeds film yeah. editing on the old flatbeds and I learned to cut film which was a you know it's such a tactile thing I mean you know yeah. editing in in premiere or adobe or whatever is fantastic but it isn't tactile when you cut film you have a very direct relationship yeah you you understand the pacing because it's physical yeah Yeah, it's very physical i mean you are physically pulling the film up and splicing it and gluing it together so you are physically making these edits and so i i you know premiere and and digital editing is fantastic because it gives you so many more options and so much more freedom but there is definitely something lost from the art of film editing. I think also when you have to, when you're gonna, I know I know you know you, you're working on on negatives and and so well you're not yeah. dealing with the only copy, but you have to make it's a pain in the ass to cut it, splice it together, and then and go oh that doesn't work. It's really hard work to to go through that whole process. Yeah, so I think it makes you really consider your storytelling. Uh, and obviously, as the editor, you know, you're not the only person telling that story. There are many other people in the production telling that story. But it makes you 
much more it makes you consider your editing i think much more the same with shooting on film it makes you think like okay i'm gonna shoot off like a couple of hundred quids worth of film now i have to make it make it work because i have only got so many roles and there are there are, there are absolute advantages in in both methods i mean again digital you know filming digitally is fantastic because you don't have to worry about that very thing but sometimes that very thing you worry about makes your choices far more considered and so then uh i came out of uh i came out of art school i mean there was no work around and i got offered the chance to de design some boxer shorts <laughs> <laughs> a natural progression from filmmaking to boxer shorts and I, I honestly can't remember now how it came about for the next few years I was designing cartoon boxer shorts. I mean, just the most ghastly stuff you can imagine. How did you segue from boxer shorts to, to, to like Marvel comics and so forth? Well, that's... <laughs> it's a natural progression. It's, again, a natural jump. You know, well, I was, I was, I like to say I was big in boxer shorts until the bottom fell out of the market. I really wanted to get into working in comic books. I always had. Yeah. And so I began while I was doing this other other work, which was which was paying well, but not creatively very satisfying. I began to work on some comic book material. A really smart editor who I still know uh, today, a lovely guy called Brian Clark. Uh, he said to me, um, do you know how to do lettering for comic books? And of course, I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I knew nothing about lettering, absolutely nothing. Uh, but I said, yes, I absolutely did. I knew how to letter. And so he said, we, we bring over these Italian Donald Duck strips and we just re-letter the word balloons into English. And again, pre-digital. So the, all, this was all done uh, analog. So you would get uh, a stat of the artwork. Yeah, uh, a sheet laid over it. The word, I think, the word balloons in this, in in my case, the word balloons were already on the stat that we were given of the original artwork. So we had blank word balloons, and then using the uh, parallel ruler on a drawing board, I would physically mark out all the lines, lines and spaces in the word balloons, and letter them all by hand and do little stick-on things for the sound effects. And the way, as I said to you, I knew nothing about lettering. And so as soon as I came away from this meeting with Brian with my first order for a Disney strip, I went out and I, I went to a local WH Smith bookshop or somewhere, and I bought a, a book that was called How to Write and Draw Comic Books. And I literally sat down doing my first lettering with that book on the desk in front of me. I I went to Cannes with a book on how to do distribution deals and was reading it under the table. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think there are, I think I think part of part of working in the creative industries, it's good to be a bullshitter. Yeah, you've got you've got to do the blag, right? Yeah, you've got to do the blag, but I think you also need to be to deliver. Because if you do the blag and don't deliver, you know, your reputation will sink like anything else. I practiced and I worked and I soon found a method for doing it. But the important part of this is that I, I did show exactly as you say, I delivered. I delivered good lettering and Brian was very happy with it. And so I, I 
lettered Disney strips while I was doing the the boxer short stuff. And um, I was working still for one of the rag trade companies. And they called me in and said to me, Dave, we've got this new project. We've just bought the license for this new Batman film that's coming out. Uh, and it's it's Warner Brothers are making it. And it's it's some guy called Tim Burton directing it. And Jack Nicholson is going to play the Joker. We've bought the license for teen girls wear. And so they asked, they said, you know, we know you're really into comic books. Um, would you would you like to do some designs for it? We'd like you to, you know, design these dresses and T-shirts. And so I did a whole load of artwork and Jack Nicholson made one of the smartest moves of his career when he made this Batman movie because he had written into his contract a merchandising clause. And so both him and Michael Keaton, who played Batman, they both had to, or their agents had to approve all of the merchandise that was being put through. And this was this was quite a while before the film came out. There was an early stream of stuff coming through to them, but it all had to go out to the States for approval. So I did this artwork, sent it to Warner Brothers in London, and they sent it out to the States and it was all approved and they, they loved what I did. And Warner Brothers turned around and said to me, oh, we, we really like your artwork. Would you would you like to show us, you know, your portfolio and see what else you do? And so I did. And they really liked my stuff. They invited me onto a thing called the Looney Tunes Design Looniversity. It was a um, it was a, a, a course that they were running, a program that they were running in in Paris. And the, the idea behind it was that they were going to pull together artists that they could use all around the world. So you would have approved Warner Brothers artists working on all their licensed material. They flew in some of the original animation directors from the, from the original Looney Tunes cartoons. And so what we would do is we would sit in the mornings and we would discuss the psychology of the Looney Tunes characters with the directors. Why, why does, you know, Sylvester chase Tweety and why does Roadrunner, uh, why does Wiley Coyote chase Roadrunner, Roadrunner and, you know, what's the psychology of Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck? And then after in these incredible Parisian five course lunches where we would all be quite squiffy come the afternoon because there were, there were always gallons of wine served with it. We would then sit in the afternoons with these animation directors and learn to draw the characters. Um I mean, it was basically as if somebody had just thrown me into the middle of heaven. Yeah, because you're sitting at the at, at the feet of masters who invented the game, right? Absolutely. I mean, this was you could not ask for a, a better way to do this. All educational artistic courses should be like this. I think I think the big problem with uh, uh, creative education courses 
is they don't allow the students to go out at lunchtime and have five course meals with wine. <laughs> you'd, I think you'd get a lot of a lot more creativity out of students if that was on the on the program. No, and I think Oxford is the only place that still has these kind of dining halls that they do yes. that, and, and, and those people get to run the country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, maybe that isn't such a good idea in that case. I think it's perfect for creatives, not people who run countries. Yes. <laughs> So then I became uh, an approved artist for Warner Brothers. Right. And I began working on on licensed material for Looney Tunes and Beetlejuice, the animated series. This this sort of brings us to around the period of the great British explosion of comic book creators, British comic creators migrating over to the US. Uh, People like Alan Moore. Uh, who began writing the DC comics and and Dave Gibbons, who was drawing Green Lantern for DC. And then obviously they teamed up and they created this little thing called Watchmen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, vaguely remember it, yeah. Vaguely, yeah, yeah. Not not very well known, but... Um, yeah, these days. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they're up to, those guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think they, they, they did that one series and retired probably. Um, but there was this huge influx of, of British creation, creators into the comic book, into the American comic book industry. And somebody at Warner Brothers, rather cleverly, looked at humour comics and said, well, you know, the UK has this incredible history of, of, of humour comics. Beano, the Dandy, Wizard and Chips, Buster. Um, we should go to the UK and do the same that, that mainstream comics are doing, superhero comics are doing. We should go and poach all of these creatives. And so um, a, a, a couple of, an editor called Kate, named Katie Main came over from Warner Brothers, and we had a big powwow meeting with her at uh, the Marvel UK offices. And uh, I, I very quickly became a writer for Warner Brothers, working on Looney Tunes, Tiny Toon Adventures, Tasmania, and then later Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain. Um, and, and in fact, I became, a, a for, I think, for six or seven years, I was a contract writer for Warner Brothers Worldwide Publishing. Um, who fed directly into DC Comics. So all of the American Animaniacs comics were published from our material. So um, uh, they were originally, when I began working with them, they were on the East Coast in New York, and and then they moved across to the West Coast to be closer um, uh, closer with the movie industry. Right, yeah. Which kind of became fortuitous for my next leap <laughs> you, you 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 literally sort of fall into each thing along the way I, I, you know kind of do i mean it, it's it's I, I like to think of it as as falling with intent yes yes Th- these things could be looked very much as having fallen into them but they they're also very much a product of using your talent and also using your drive and and as the name of this pod attests to your grit to survive and move forward in the industry my mentor used to say because i used to say like oh you know it seems when you talk to people a lot of things are luck yeah and, and he, he said to me 
it's funny, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You have to be in it to win it, right? You have to be doing it to be seen. Yeah, this this led to my next move, which was my editor, Katie, and I had, had discussed working on some non-Warner Brothers projects together. Eventually, we decided to actually make a go of it, and so I moved out to Los Angeles. I remember it one Sunday evening, we were sitting around and saying, well, if we're out here to pitch stuff, why don't we? <laughs> this sounds like such an absurd thing, considering what then happened. But we, we sat there on a Sunday evening in her bungalow in in uh, Burbank. I mean, it couldn't be any more Hollywood in, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're out here pitching, why don't we try and pitch some movie ideas? You know, which is what everybody in Hollywood says. I mean, everybody, when you, when you live in Hollywood, you very quickly discover that anybody who's, who's, who's living in Hollywood is there to pitch for the movies or, or you know, as an actor or producer. Nobody is in L.A. if they don't want to work in the movies. So Katie said to me, you know, there's this fantastic book that you can buy, which is like a directory of all the production companies. And it gives you all their lists, all the producers and all their phone numbers. It cost it cost about 150 pounds, which is it sort of like a bit like the knowledge, I guess. Yeah, yeah, a bit like the knowledge. And so we went to a we went to a Hollywood bookshop. And, and spent this vast amount of money on this on this book. Katie was still working at Warner's at the time, and so she went to work on Monday morning. And I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'm just going to try ringing round a couple of places and see what happens." And so Monday morning, I was sitting thumbing idly thumbing through this directory, and I tried ringing a couple of production companies. I think two or three. No joy. Didn't get through to anybody. And and eventually, I, I just happened across New Line Cinema. Now, New Line at that time uh, were known as the house that Freddie built uh, because they'd had, I mean, the studio had basically been built on the back of the success of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Um, and so I thought, oh, New Line, they're interesting. They, they do a lot of genre movies. Maybe they would be a good one good company to rent and so i i looked down the list of producers and i came across and no, I, I have no idea why this name stuck out to me but it was just a, it was a woman name of donna langley and i just rang her i mean a pure cold call at like 9 40 on a monday morning and and this is where sometimes luck plays a part she answered her phone well, yeah. Now this is very unusual for a for a producer of any kind to answer their own phone. Um, so it wasn't even an assistant. She she picked up the phone, and the second piece of luck, she was from London. She was a Londoner. Oh, cool. So we spent the next sort of twenty twenty five minutes just talking about London and places that we both knew in London and bars and restaurants and whatever that we that we we, we had in common and then and then suddenly she just said so so what are you doing in Hollywood now what are you doing in LA and I said well actually my part writing partner and I are, are hoping to pitch some ideas to the studios and she said oh 
great, that sounds fantastic. Would you like to come in for a, a pitch? Yeah. When do you want to come in? I said, um, uh, because this completely threw me. I was you this, hadn't written anything yet. Yeah, <laughs> literally the last thing in the world I was expecting to hear. And she said, "How about a week from today, on Monday, uh, at say one p.m.?" And, and I said, "Let me just check. Let me just check in my imaginary calendar, which has nothing on it anyway." Uh, and I said, "Yeah, yeah. Next Monday sounds great. Great." She said, "I'll I'll see you in a week." And so I put the phone down, and I immediately rang Katie at work and i said hey uh we have a pitch at new line cinema a week from today and there was just complete silence at the other end of the phone and she said well i guess we better think of some movie ideas then because <laughs> we had nothing i mean we had absolutely nothing i love that get the, get the pitch then work back from it and then work back from it yeah i mean it was you know it, it was the same as you know do you you know how to letter comic books yeah, yeah, yeah. sure yeah, yeah. you know uh i'd never written a, a movie treatment in my life but i learned how to do it incredibly quickly uh i mean we literally worked night and day we just didn't sleep for the next seven days and we were still printing out the the pitch documents like an hour before we drove across town to to head into the studio. But we pitched, uh, I guess, six or seven ideas, and she liked all but one of them. And and I don't think this happens very often. But she said, "What one do you want to write? I love them all." This is where luck can work both ways. Had we have picked one of the either ideas, who knows what would have happened? But we picked this one particular idea. And she said, well, I have to tell you that idea, there is another script already in development that's a bit further along than you are. And it's not the same idea, but you you share some ideas in common. Right. So if you choose that one, I'm warning you now that there is a there is a rival script with supreme arrogance. We just said, you know, the arrogance of, of naivety born of idiocy. We just said, yeah, we you know, this script's going to be great. We're going to we're going to write this one. It's the one we want to write. So we had a deal <laughs> with New Line Cinema, you know, to write a screenplay. And uh, the first thing we did was. The new line, I don't know if they still are, but the new, new line offices were right opposite the Ivy, the famous Ivy restaurant in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we literally just walked across the road and downed a bottle of champagne in, in five minutes or so, you know, uh, thinking we had made it. At the same time as this was happening, but I had met the film director, Joel Schumacher. Right. I had been an art director on a music video for the band U2, which was taken from one of the Batman films. I forgot to mention this in the path. Uh, <laughs> you, you just knocked off uh, uh, directing a very well-known music video. <laughs> <laughs> it was from one of the uh, Batman movies. It was um, uh, Batman Forever. And so um, I art directed this music video called, uh, it was a song called... Um, Hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me. And it was pretty successful. We won a couple of uh, MTV awards for it. Because of this, I, I when I was living in, in LA, I got to meet 
Joel Schumacher, who was the director of, of Batman Forever. And he was just about to start shooting the next Batman film. So these these things were happening simultaneously. Schumacher, his first word when I when I introduced myself and I told him who I was and, and why we had a connection, I said I art directed the music video from your previous Batman film. His first words to me, throwing his arms up in the air, uh, he said, "Oh my God, you are a fucking genius." <laughs> which I actually had that printed on my business cards for several years. (laughs) So he invited me onto the set of Batman and Robin. While on the set of Batman Robin, I met the guy who was the special effects director of the film, a a fellow called uh, John Dykstra. Now, John Dykstra, to anybody who's a bit of a special effects geek, you know he's kind of been written out of the, the official Star Wars history a bit. But he was instrumental in the effects for Star Wars. He invented the Dijkstraflex camera, which really was the basis for the formation of industrial light and magic. No John Dijkstra, no ILM. It's as simple as that. Dijkstra was the brains and Lucas had the money, right? Dijkstra, because he fell out with Lucas, um, actually over the series Battlestar Galactica, which... Dijkstra was a producer on the TV series and Lucas felt that was ripping off Star Wars. And so they, they got into this big lawsuit. So I met him on the set and we began to develop a, a project together. Initially, uh, he, he was big friends with Dan Aykroyd, having done the effects for My Stepmother is an Alien. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so at the same time, and this was in within a matter of weeks of me arriving in Hollywood, we are developing one film with John Dykstra for Dan Aykroyd, and we have a deal to write a screenplay for New Line Cinema. Now, I mean, there are people who can live in Hollywood for decades and never get that far. Yeah, Our life experiences had led us both to this point. Yes. And, and, and so we were, we were, trolling along for months working on these two projects and th- and then uh, we handed in our our first draft for new line and something here's where the bad luck can come in equally come into play jim carrey hot off of making the mask got involved with the rival script at, at new line and wanted to make the film and of course once new line had carrey attached to the rival script we were dead in the water completely. Yeah. And so uh, so that was the end of our, our trail with New Line. Then the other thing that happened is that, unfortunately, Batman and Robin was released. <laughs> and you're not the only person to have said that. Yeah. No, no. I think anybody who went to see it probably said the same thing. Well, it's a shame that was released. It literally killed several careers dead in the water. Schumacher at the time was the golden boy of Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. And so that killed his career for a, for a few years. Uh, it, it stopped. Dijkstra had a, a, a development deal on the back of agreeing to do the effects for Batman and Robin, that Warner's would look at his projects that he was developing, including ours. Right. But then, of course, Batman and Robin killed that as well. His deal died in the water. You know, 
within a few months, everything just stopped. And um, I had been continuing while all this was going on. I was writing a newspaper strip for the Daily Star back in the UK. <laughs> You're out gallivanting with Ackroyd, Dykstra, <laughs> Schumacher and writing for the Daily Star. <laughs> As you do. And, and the strip. We did this strip, which is completely forgotten now, but was actually rather successful at the time, called The Workers. And it was about a couple of building site workers. And uh, I was writing it, and my my uh, partner, Bill Greenhead, was was drawing it. He, he'd originally created the characters, and then I came in to work on it with him. Bill and I had some problems with express newspapers. At the same time, everything was going, going pear-shaped in, in L.A., there were some problems with with express newspapers that I, I felt I had to come back and address with Bill. And and so that was sort of the end of my Hollywood career, you know, but a, a, an incredible experience. Well, no, uh, that, that, that obviously in, it, it then informs. Everything you do informs everything you do. I mean, it, it, that sounds like such a glib thing to say, but I think it's sometimes forgotten that that even you know the most useless what you what you might at the time of doing it think is a useless experience adds to your total experience that you gain over the years well yeah because i mean i suppose i, th- I and i think people particularly in the creative industry sometimes fixate too much on the yes. things that didn't work out and and the reality is is you still go through the process and therefore you have experienced something which gives you new new uh, sort of feathers to your wing it, it, Absolutely. it gives you new elements and therefore more tools in the toolkit to fall, to fall back on 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 everything that you then do plus if you approach it in the right way even if you fail the experience itself is a success you have been through that experience mm-hmm. and and whether whatever measure you you judge it by whether it was successful or or a failure you know, it would be very easy to look back on my my Hollywood time and say, well, that was a failure because no film or TV series ever came out of it. But what a, an incredible experience I went through. What a learning experience I went through. But also, I suppose up until that point, until you, until you went and pitched a feature film without having ever written a feature film, you you had been like writing strips and stuff, which is you know very, is very short form in in in, in essence, and, and so that must have then opened a door in your brain to go, I can write more stuff, and you you just as you say, you just keep adding to yeah. what you can do. Everything builds into the, the next stage, and so you know then. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not afraid to write anything now. And that's not to say I won't struggle writing stuff. It's not to say that these tools that you you put in the toolbox make everything completely easy. It's not a magic wand that you're putting in the toolkit. It's simply another tool. And you have to work with and develop that tool. You, you know, you have to take the tools out this is beginning to sound a bit dodgy but you have to take the tools out of the toolbox and polish them once in a while <laughs> this is a really odd analogy i'm not going to go any further with that i don't well, no, but no but i i think it, it, it's like you say you know you start off on a pathway of, of, of essentially yeah. being an artist you know then then you're doing designs yeah. for for clothing and then then that segues into comic books and then 
that turns into script writing. It turns into music video direction, you know, yeah. storyboard art, writing. And I suppose the essence is, is what you are, is you are a storyteller creator. And I think there's there's another important point to make to that is 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 about being open to new experiences and, and sort of saying, okay, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm open to doing it and I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to work as hard as I can on getting this right and producing something of worth. Um, and, and again, you know, that mentality is what, what then led to the next jump. I came back from the U.S., and began to fall back on on my drawing skills because obviously I I you know I'd been in LA and I I needed to reestablish myself in the UK and so my my drawing skills are kind of what I consider my my first and natural talent to use got in contact with a guy called Dominic Gregory who was working at Cartoon Network UK we met for a, a, a drink and to look through my work. And he really liked my stuff. Obviously, I had a lot of licensed character artwork in my folio. I very quickly became their kind of go-to cartoon guy because I could I could draw this stuff pretty quickly. And, and, and I was very creative with my ideas. I was using all of my – if I was asked to draw a poster, I, I would approach it. Although it was a single image, I would approach it from a very – storytelling point of view so that it wasn't just a static image there was more to it than that and so I began to draw a lot for Cartoon Network UK and then I got involved on the uh, the on-air side so I was being asked to storyboard idents uh, if you watch something like Cartoon Network and you between the programs there are little commercials advertising something on the channel so Cartoon Network is, we're going to do a Scooby-Doo marathon next week. And here's an advert showing you that we're going to do a Scooby-Doo marathon. Now, that could very easily just be a bunch of clips thrown together. But this was a, a very creative time for Cartoon Network UK in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they were doing a lot of... Um, uh self-made and so i i began to storyboard and art direct and i became a contract artist for cartoon network uk for several years i've worked on all of the characters from the classic hannah Barbera stuff like the flintstones and scooby-doo and the jetsons and uh all the way through to the the then current big wave of, of new animation for Cartoon Network, like Dexter's Dexter's Laboratory and uh, the Powerpuff Girls and uh, Johnny Bravo and Cow and Chicken. And then this bizarre, crazy project came up. And they were kind of, these guys said, we want to do an animated pop band for, for the younger age group. And so they came up with this idea uh, called V-Birds. They pitched it to Cartoon Network UK, and, and the guys at Cartoon Network UK said, oh, we love this. You know, we want to get involved in this, and we think we can do something with it. So I got involved in um, some of the early stages of design 
for the characters, though though the characters were mainly designed by uh, a very talented designer, illustrator, a guy called um, Serge Seedlitz. Uh, but I got involved in some of the early stages of design and just did it as as it was just one of my regular gigs to do for Cartoon Network. A few months later, I, I got contacted by Cartoon Network and they said, so we've been working on V-Birds and we're going to do an animated series. It will be Cartoon Network UK's very first in-house animated series. And um, and we'd like you to come in and do some storyboards on it. Yeah, great. I can do that. And promptly trotted off to uh, uh, the studios and arrived there. And, and they had set up a mini animation studio in, in the middle of their, their sort of graphic design area. And they'd, they had Surge working away on designs and they had another guy designing backgrounds and props. And I said, oh, great, Who, who's the director? I should meet the director. And I said, oh, um, there, there isn't one. I said, okay, uh, and, and, and who's the script writer? Well, we don't have any scripts yet. And so I go, right, okay, this is kind of an unusual way to create a series, but you know, you're yeah, yeah. you're signing the checks. And so I sat down and I discovered that the storyboards I was creating were actually the scripts. When I began, the format of the show was, I think it was like, you know, seven or eight minutes, something like that. Uh, and so I began working with with the guys and creating these ideas for stories. And then can never remember how to pronounce his name correctly. So if if he ever hears this, he'll kill me. But Gendy Tartofsky. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy behind the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, he he created a series. Uh, I mean, obviously he's you know very talented guy and known for shows such as Samurai Jack. Yeah. Um, but he created a show for Cartoon Network in the U.S. called The Clone Wars. Now, this is not the Clone Wars that then ran very successfully for, I don't know what it was, seven seasons or so um, that was that was produced in CGI. This is an earlier version of it, and they were they were short little vignette episodes. I think they only ran for a a minute and a half or two minutes or something. I, I, re I remember them well, yeah, at the time, yeah. yeah. They were produced in, uh, I think it was a, a combination of, of traditional 2D and Flash. Um, very, very short little mini episodes that they did um, and pretty successful at the time for Cartoon Network. And so the guys in the UK office looked at the success of this and they said, okay, that's what V-Birds is going to be. It's going to be super short episodes. Okay, Dave, now you need to start storyboarding them. And I said, okay, and, and I'm writing the scripts, right? And, and in fact, they were never, in the history of this show, they were never actual scripts. They were only ever my storyboards with my, my sort of instructions on, on what was going on. Thankfully, we, we didn't have to get involved with dialogue because CN sort of decided they didn't want actual dialogue in the show is that so that they could export it to all so there was no there was only voiceover in the show right 
and the rest of it was just going to be told visually which was it was a it was certainly an interesting creative challenge and i had to tell they what they then decided that the format was going to be v birds would premiere over a one week and so it would be one one minute episode every day of the week so monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday different ep- different all different one minute episodes and then on the saturday they would show the compilation episode which lasted like five and a half minutes or something so no dialogue uh one minute in length and i had to had to introduce all these new characters and the world and what they were and they were they were these teenage girl characters living on on the planet v where uh the the big bad overlord of planet v had everybody working in pop farms to create to create really bad pop music like simon cow very i think he was the bad guy uh dark lord cow and and the v birds rebelled against this because they wanted to produce good pop music right and and so for their punishment for rebelling they were miniaturized and placed inside a dance, an arcade dance machine. Now, again, this is a very early 2000s thing, but in arcades where you used to go and play games, they would have arcade dance machines. So on, you would step onto the dance machine and the, the arrows would light up on the floor that corresponded to the arrows that were flashing up on the screen. And you had to follow the dance moves that were being on screen on the pad on the map that you were standing on. So the girls, the V-Birds, were miniaturized, put into a, an arcade dance machine and sent to dance. Whenever anybody put 10 pence in, in the coin, they would have to dance to pop music. <laughs> I, I mean... You had to explain all of this in a minute. In, in, a, in one minute without dialogue, you know, across five minutes total. So... No director on this, still no director on this. And I kept saying to Cartoon Network, you know, you really need a director because this this ship is like sailing dangerously through the waters of, of the creative ocean. You know, there are producers and there are designers and you've now hired animators to work on this. And there's no cohesion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no cohesion for any of this. And I kept saying it to them hire a director, hire a director. And one day they turned around and they said to me, you know, we, we, we've been hearing you say that we should have a director on this. How would you like to do it? How would you like to be the director? And so, I, you know, the project was already quite far behind schedule and it was already over budget because of the way that it was being put together. and. And I knew, I knew that what was being offered me was a poison chalice. You're like Fincher in Alien 3. Absolutely. Look, yeah. you know, I knew that, that one, of, one of two things would happen. I would completely screw up directing this series. And then everybody at Cartoon Network, and by this time, EMI Records, who had signed the V-Birds to a £1 million record deal. (laughs) Um, 
in you that if I screwed this series up, everybody could turn around and say to me, well, it was the rookie director. Yeah, yeah. You know, he did everything wrong. And of course, if I succeeded, everybody else could take the credit for it quite happily. Oh, well, you know, we, we made a good choice hiring Dave. It was it was our choice to hire Dave, you know. And we came up with the idea and everything and he came along. And just, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is one of those moments where you look at what's being offered to you and you say, this is my chance. Yeah. And I either back away from it and say, you know, no, 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 it's not the right time. Or you just dive in and say, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And I'll make the best of it. And all of my previous experiences had led me to this moment. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll direct it. And and I did. And I brought it in on time, literally on time. I was grading, I was color grading the first episode at an edit suite in Soho and doing the final sound mix like three hours before it was transmitted on the Monday. <laughs> oh, I know that stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I think all, all creatives know what that stress is like. And but I, I, we did it, you know. The, the team who was working on it, the team of animators and, and the producer, and I mean, everybody worked, whatever the end result was, and I'll come to that in a moment, but they worked incredibly hard on it. I mean, everybody sweated to get this thing out. Yeah. And I did it as, as director on the project. I, I got it on air, on time, not on budget, because I, I couldn't backtrack what had already been spent but my first project as director was successful and it was a success for Cartoon Network UK they were very happy with it and uh, we did a second series called The Birds Dance uh, which was um, like an animated dance machine thing so little dance routines for the girls so that that was an interesting experience because I had to choreograph the dance movements of the characters and I mean, there is there is somewhere in existence. The, the way that I choreographed the characters is that I went over to I crossed the road from Cartoon Network in in Oxford Street, and I went to HMV, and I bought a load of videos of S Club Seven and uh, Christine Aguilera and Britney Spears, and I basically went through all these videos of them dance, doing their dance routines, and I said. I'll have that bit and I'll have that bit. I'll have that dance move. And so then I filmed myself doing the routines that I wanted. So there exists somewhere in the world. TikTok. And I'm, I'm waiting <laughs> for it to come out one of these days. Footage of me doing, you know, and I've not, bless me, I am I'm many things, but I'm not a dancer. At least not, not a graceful one. One day this footage will, will rise from the ashes yeah. to embarrass me. But we, you know, we did it, and and honestly, V Birds, it's a it's a fucking mess. I mean, it's it's exactly the kind of mess that it sounds like it should be. It had some success, and the the characters went out on tour with a group called Blazing Squad. I remember I've worked with Blazing Squad. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a small industry what a, what a, it is. What a, what a, what a, you and I have talked many times. I mean, literally, yeah. there was a period of almost 10 years where you and I must have passed in the corridors of pubs and and 
edit suites and all sorts because it's and and, and I think we've even worked with people with, with with peers uh, the same. And it's funny that 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 we never met until we were both in Norway. <laughs> um, but, but serendipity, serendipity day. Very funny. And and considering we, we met in a, a very small town in the middle of the fjords yeah, yeah. in Norway, and we must have walked within centimetres of each other on numerous occasions in Soho or Camden or wherever, yeah, and, you know. And there was such an overlap with 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 cartoon i i had lots of ex-colleagues that worked at cartoon network and i was at disney and and all of these worlds kind of intermingled because they were they were the start i suppose there was all this explosion of digital channels as well which would yeah which is kind of an odd thing because the the work that i did with them was just on the cusp of everything moving over to digital yeah so much of my work from that period, it, it's very tough to track it down because it was the it was the last of the analog transmitted stuff, you know. It, it's the same with me. There's so much work that 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 was too before YouTube to have ended up on YouTube, and it is probably you know it's sitting on tapes somewhere. Yeah, for sure. You know, it exists in some library somewhere the the the, the compilation effort episode of v-birds is on youtube okay, yeah. really low res copy right. I, I mean i understand they're still they're big in japan <laughs> of course and and there is you know i occasionally i i will look on youtube to see if i can find a good copy of the of, of the episode to see if anybody has uploaded one and I see that, you know, there's lots of people who remember V-Birds quite fondly. If they saw it, they they kind of liked it. So it was kind of interesting that it had this sort of very, it had quite a, a strong impact on the kids that enjoyed it, even though, God bless them. I mean, it was, you know, I look at it now and I I see it as being my first my first effort as a director and I kind of cringe. But on the other hand, I also look at it and say, hey, look what we did. You know, we all pulled that off with a lot of late nights. And But that, that that's the trick, isn't it? And, and I think, I mean, you, you and I have, have bonded on this uh, uh, before. A, because of the, the kind of pop, we, we, we consumed a lot of pop culture, good and bad. And I think yeah. when you talk to other creators, because we understand the, the process, whatever comes of it you still anybody that goes through it you're like but you did it because a critic can kind of sit on the side going well that won't work and that's the whole point of creativity you've got to give it a go and it might not work and that's you can't be afraid of that look you know i mean as a fan i will sit around and and tear apart you know the rise of skywalker as a star wars fan i will sit there and say my god you know why didn't why didn't Disney hire people to sit in a room and create a cohesive story yeah. through those three films? And look what you ended up, you know, look what a mess you ended up with in Rise of Skywalker. But at the same time, as a creative, I can take a step back from, from those fanish thoughts. Yeah. And I look at that and say, but Jesus Christ, you know, how many people, look how much blood and sweat and and hard work they put into making what's well, still an enjoyable movie to watch you know and touches millions of people 
it's something any piece of work created, whether whether you appreciate whether you like it, is irrelevant. You can still appreciate it for the fact that somebody got off their ass and did it. And I, I, I will always love that. I will always love any piece of work for the endeavor. I might not like it, but I will love it for the endeavor and and support. Absolutely, and, and you know. I guess that kind of neatly brings us to the next step, yeah. which was that I I then went into teaching uh, for ten years. I had a I I was I oh, I was doing some work with Cartoon Network UK, and I was asked to fly over to Norway right. to do. Uh, I think it was about ten days. We did it for. Um, a kind of grassroots promotional campaign for Cartoon Network in Norway. And uh, there's, there's quite a funny story to the start of this. So it was going to be uh, this big tour going around Norway, Cartoon Network in, you know, shopping centers and, and this kind of thing, promoting the channel and, and getting kids to come in. And I was going to draw, you know, cow and chicken for them or scooby-doo yeah, yeah. i've never been to norway before and i flew into trondheim on a friday night yeah. and the pr guy picked me up at the airport he said uh, we've had some problems he said nothing to worry about i'll tell you all about it in the morning and he says to me so we've been having some trouble with with sort of local media and local newspapers who don't really want to promote this tour because they just see it as pure advertising for the channel, which, of course, yeah, that's exactly what it was. That's how PR works, right? I, they had had some resistance. He said, so we've kind of changed the focus of the tour. And we arrived at this shopping centre, and I walked into the, the big central atrium, and there are these huge photos of me blown up to like vast size, plastered <laughs> around the atrium of this shopping center. I mean, it was like a cathedral of me. And <laughs> so he said, so what we've done, we've changed the focus. It's now, and he, he took me over to the stand and it was now, it said, uh, originally it was the Cartoon Network History of Animation Tour. But what they had now done, it was the Dave King History of Animation Tour in association with Cartoon Network. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this absolutely bizarre tour of Norway. I mean, it kind of went crazy. They they were expecting like a few kids to turn up, but in in places we had like queues of two or three hundred kids lining up to get drawings, which of course was was physically impossible for me uh and so we began doing things like i would photocopy drawings that i had done of the characters and then i would personally i'd do a very quick little sketch of something to kind of personalize it but we were doing all this and so we would then then obviously i guess the the media the local media were kind of happy to publicize this there there was an animation course at a place called uh, volda in norway and, and they asked me over to do they said, oh, we've seen what you're doing. You know, it sounds great. Would you like to come over and do a lecture? And so uh, I, I went and did a two-day lecture with them. And that 
eventually became 10 years of, of teaching. It's like the godfather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was literally like that great line in the worst Godfather movie, yeah. uh, part three. And, uh, and Pacino says, I keep trying to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> and that's always how I felt about the, the animation course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had always been quite snobby about teaching. Honestly, right. because I hate teachers. At, 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 uni, at uh, art school, led me towards the thought that you know, them that can do, them that can't teach. Yeah, which is which is is pretty unfair because there are a lot of fantastic teachers out there. There's something special about going and doing stuff, and then wanting and then wanting to to impart something or encourage i don't think it's even like uh, sort of payback or anything like that it's just that if you had a good teacher who encouraged you you want to be able to go and encourage some other people i i always hoped uh and i've worked with uh several schools including the uh the animation workshop in viborg in denmark which is one of the top animation schools in europe I always feel when I teach that I want to be the kind of teacher I wish I had had at, at art school, yeah. uh, which which is somebody with a wealth of industry knowledge yeah. to draw on. Yeah. I, I, I feel the best teachers, and I include you in this very much, that I have come across in my my 10 years in education I feel the very best teachers are ones who have a wealth of experience in the industry to give to their students. I think there's a, there's a great phrase that, that teaching isn't the filling of a bucket, but the igniting of a fire. And yeah, I think that's if, brilliant. if you think it's to pour knowledge into somebody's head, it doesn't work like that. And I think, and if you, and you're not going to ignite all the fires. That's not all. No, no. But, but if you try try and set people on a path to believe, it's, it's like what you said very much at the early part of this podcast that having that moment where you go, I could do this. And yeah. 90% of being able to do that is at least having somebody believe yes. in you and go, you yeah. could do that. Yeah. And, and just preparing you for, you know, artistic education is, is, is too often created in an artistic bubble yeah a rarefied bubble of of you know oh we are artists and we float around you know not being challenged and not being prepared for life beyond education and that's that to me is is another hugely important element of of creative education is preparing you for a career yeah, because creativity doesn't necessarily. I mean, I think people mix art and creativity sometimes yeah. wrongly, yeah. and and sometimes I think some creative education fixates far too much on the analysis of art. Yes, very much so. Than the process of creativity. Very, very much so. And I, I... there isn't a need in the world for an analysis of art, but they're, they're quite different things. And there is absolutely a place for the analysis of of the creative process but there is also a huge need and i think it's it's reflected in in 
the feedback that students often give, there is a huge need to prepare them in very practical ways. Mm, pragmatic as well, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you know, to be pragmatic with your creativity is hugely important. And and I would, I would cite the animation workshop as being one of the places that really has a firm grip on that, yeah. on that balance between the two different things. Yeah. Artistic and, and pragmatism are really finely balanced there. And, and I, I think they get the balance right. And more courses should look at, at that, at getting that balance yeah. right. And I, I, I think if, if you are starting out on this journey, yep. pick your mentors and your advisors carefully. Don't, yeah. and I, cause I, I think certainly when I was at school in, in high school and that too many, too many people say, Oh, you can't do that or you shouldn't do it like that. Yeah. Find people that, that want you to succeed. Find people that want you to succeed, but also ones who challenge. You need somebody that wants you to succeed, but is also a critical friend. Yes. Somebody who sits there and just says, Oh, that's lovely. You know, go and do some more of that. Well, that's great for three years. That's code for get out of my office. I want to do something else. You know, to have somebody sit there and say, oh, darling, that's lovely. You know, oh, you're so creative. You're so, look at what you've done. That's lovely. Well done. Having somebody say that for three years is fantastic for those three years while you're there. And you're waft through those three years, you know, bliss, creative bliss. But it's not very indicative of, of how things are going to be when you have to go out and actually, you know, pay the rent with that creativity. Well, that, 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 that's, the, that's why I make the distinction of people who want you to succeed, not people who just tell you you're good. Yeah. There's a difference. Yeah. A, a huge difference. I came to the end of my path in teaching. Yeah. And I, I, I could feel it coming for a while. I, I, I could feel me needing to stretch out into the industry again after a decade. The, the, the problem with teaching, I think, is it can become cyclical after a while. And that, that can grind your gears as a creative person. Very, very much so. And if, if, you're, if you're in an environment that in, encourages cyclical teaching, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I really began in the last couple of years to feel that I needed to flex those creative muscles again. So I have just recently set up my, my production company here in Norway. It, it's a very simple name. It's just called Dave King Creative. I very deliberately not put too much of an emphasis on coming up with a witty name or anything. Because for one thing, I, I intend to work in different areas. Another thing that the industry and education do all too frequently yeah. is that they try both of the both education and academia are very good at pigeonholing. Well, yeah, I suppose that, that because academia is all about categorizing and measuring yeah. Yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in many ways, you know, the industry can do the same as well. You know, I've always I've always confused a lot of people in the industry because I I move along this you know to me it's a very clear red thread it's all storytelling yeah everything i've done is about storytelling when you say to somebody well i've worked in fashion and comic books and newspapers and music videos and and broadcast and film and tv and 
and education and everything else, they, they kind of, oh, so what is it you do? You know, they, they get a little confused by it. But to me, it's, as I say, that thread through all of it, the red thread is very clear and it's about being a storyteller. So uh, what I now am working on, I mean, it's it's all, I've only literally just set this up. So it's way too early to talk about specific projects, but um you know, there's. Uh, I can I can tell you that there's three animated TV series, uh, one live action drama series, uh, two feature films, one animated and one live action, right, cool. um, and something else in in. I'll, I'll just say it's something else in education for the moment, kind of. Okay. Dave King Creative. I want to be an umbrella title. But all the things that I love doing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I'll probably get this wrong, but it's like you're a you're a is it a polymath? Like somebody that does multiple things, <laughs> and that sounds wrong because it sounds mathematic. But yeah, which I'm I'm most definitely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can attest to that. I've never understood why people pigeonhole creative people because I think your spark goes where 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 there's a zeitgeist where there's a there's a there's a something in the air there's there's i mean i found that i've worked across education multiple genres children uh, uh, horror documentary and and for me it's always like well what 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 sparks my curiosity i guess yeah, what excites me i mean this is something else you know i mean it's it's not I guess it is always you, you should be excited by what you're doing and you should have a, a passion for what you're doing. I mean, I was I was as as excited to get that very first lettering job in comic books as I was to get my first script into a Hollywood studio. I mean, how if you if you take those two things in isolation you could look at that and say, "How could you? How is that possible? How could you be as excited about lettering, you know, Italian Donald Duck strips, re-lettering even, you know?" Uh, but I was, and and when I look back on it, I, I I still am. I think, how cool was that? How exciting was that for me at that time to be working on that project? I think going back to that kind of learning point is, is is the 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 core element of learning is curiosity and i think yeah. curiosity is also the core element of creativity and that's why learning and creativity do actually go hand in hand if if you take that mindset you know i mean curious i mean i think these are key words curiosity excitement passion these these are the things and 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 not being afraid of new experiences, yeah, and and also not being afraid to fail, yeah, 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 because you you you've got to lean into that, right? Absolutely. I mean, you don't go into a project hoping you will fail. Nobody would do. Nobody in their right minds would do that. But you have to prepare a part of your brain, a, 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 you know, some kind of lizard part of it at the back to say, I might screw this up. It's a pos- it's one of the possibilities that could happen there. Or no- when I go into a project, it's like, okay, there's a number of pathways that, that I could take on this. You know, one of the pathways and the one that I hope it will be is that it will work and be successful, you know, whether it's financially or creatively or whatever. 
And but another one of those paths is that I might screw this up big time. That could happen. And I think if you if you don't like that, you should go and work in an office nine to five. If, yeah, if, definitely. If, if you can't embrace that, yes, then, then don't do it. Just <laughs> that should be part of your excitement. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to to be a creative and make a living from what you do is to constantly walk on a tightrope. And I, I think that that's something that will always wind me up in modern times is I feel like when I ask people like, so why do you want to do this? You know, I do, and I do it like that. Why do you want to do this? You know, because I can remember how I was knocking down doors to do it. And somebody goes, I don't know. And I'm like, <laughs> and I just want to say, go home. Absolutely. I, 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 I don't know I, the answer to that question then stop what has made me who i am are my experiences it's based on my experiences and my experiences have come from entirely from my own drive you know this huge story that i've just taken you through you know nobody ever gave me a leg up in the industry you know i've i've fallen into these things but i've fallen into them because of the hard work that I've put in along the way elsewhere. And, and each thing I've done has fed into the next the next stage. So I, I do have a problem, exactly as you were just saying, that that sometimes people will say, oh, I don't really know why I want to be, I just, you know, I want to draw or or whatever. And I, I, I can't help it. I just want to shake people and say, then go and do something else, you know. It's difficult because also when 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 people are at the start they don't always know and 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 and, and so but it, it comes back I suppose the whole point of doing this podcast is and, and and calling it grit and talking to the people that I'm talking to is to demonstrate that most of the people I'm talking to had no pre they didn't have a big game plan they had a burning desire and they had tenacity and they had resilience and 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 they had luck and hard work. And, and actually, when you start to deconstruct almost everybody's story, there are these common themes. Yeah. And, and I, there absolutely are. And, and, and I think just sort of going back on education for a moment, that's, that's a huge piece that's often missing in creative education is, is I mean, you can't teach grit or resilience you can nurture it but though. you can nurture it and you can you can introduce students to the idea that they are going to to need this and they are going to have to develop their own inner strength if they really want to make a, a, a career from yeah. what no, they no, love that's doing the trick. It, it is if you want to do this as a sustainable living there are certain things that you have to be able to endure and and push yourself through with if, if, if you want to do it as a hobby, that's absolutely fine. But just be honest about it. Be honest that you want yeah, to do that sure. as a hobby. And I'll be like, great. I have friends who make films as hobbies, who 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 do art as hobby, and great. And, and I'll always, you know, thumbs up. And I understand all of the reasons why they won't put themselves in. And it might even take away the joy to be paid. And, you know, we're all built differently. And not everybody has that, 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 that ability to draw on inner strength uh on reserves of inner strength to to push themselves forward to some i i find myself very easily motivated that's not to say i don't have days where i just think oh fuck this i'm watching netflix for the rest of the day you know every creative goes through that but 
generally speaking, I'm somebody who can draw on their own resilience and their own drive. Now, that's me. And I know that not everybody is naturally able to do that. So I don't want it to sound like I'm being dismissive of people who have to work at that. But I think that's what is important for a good teacher to do is to, is as you say, you nurture that. That's something that you have to nurture. And I think that's something that isn't done enough in education. It's, it's, it's more about you know, making you better at, at learning to use Photoshop or, or Flash or how to use this camera or, or whatever, you know. And those are that's all great. It's fantastic to, to develop. And there are also things that YouTube can do and a book can do. What, what A book and YouTube aren't very good at nurturing an individual person. No, and nor should they be. It's not, it's not their place. You know, I, I, I always joke, with, like, I saw somebody post the other day a video of an AI-generated like teacher. And they were saying like, oh, God, you know, the robots are going to replace us. And I said, and I just wrote underneath, if you can be replaced by a robot, you should be. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I know many teachers who should be replaced by AI. <laughs> Some intelligence would be better than none. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I say, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm being too harsh. No, no. Because I know that, that grit does not come naturally to everybody. The other thing is, is. If you, I mean, I, I don't think when I started out, I had a natural, you know, I wasn't, I was, I was a bit of a meek and mild person, believe it or not, when, when I was, when I was younger. <laughs> but what I learned to also do is surround yourself with people who, who help your blind spots. It's the first thing I learned when I moved into directing, yeah. you know, it's such a cliche to say it, but it's absolutely true for a director. The, the best skill a director can have is learning to surround themselves with people who are good at what they do and know what they're doing. You know, bring in a great scriptwriter, bring in a great production designer, you know, bring in a, a, a great DOP or whatever. Surround yourself with people who are good at what they do. Stick to your creative vision, but be absolutely open to listening to what these people who are good at their jobs tell you or what they suggest. And, and I think the, the, the real skill of a director is listening to all these different creative opinions and filtering it through into the vision that you have for the finished thing. Um, you must stand by, you, you must have this guiding vision. You are the director, you are the filter through whichever the funnel through which all this creativity comes. But I, I think the kind of director, and I'm sure there are some, you know, auteurs, you know, there's David Fincher who sits there and who manages every single pixel on the screen. Fincher has his trusted collaborators, people that he listens to and filters their ideas through. And, and and I think and again to to be a director you have to have quite a bit of grit and resilience and drive uh, and and you know that's one of it's one of the reasons I love directing again because it, it feels like a, a culmination of everything I've I've learned over the years you know I think I think directing and teaching have a lot of synchronicity maybe not necessarily similarity but synchronicity i think yeah mate yeah. that seems a good like just because you you use the term grit there at the end that seems a perfect <laughs> time to wrap up it was going to be impossible to 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 put your whole career 
high, even the highlights are hard put into into uh, an episode. I do not envy you editing this down to an hour or so. <laughs> it's it's the start of a new season, so maybe it needs to be that little extra long, you know, to get get into the habit of it. And and I I'm sure that some way down the path we'll also return because I know you've got exciting projects in the work that you you you, you can't tell too much about because they're in in the works, but but. Maybe there's a, a bit of behind the scenes. Maybe, or maybe they'll feel miserably. <laughs> we'll be looking at your boxer shorts. You know, you can always go backwards in a career as well. <laughs> All right, mate. It's been lovely catching up with you. And uh, uh, as always, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to get together in Oslo soon and, and, and have a beer. Yeah, when the world opens up, starts to open up again, hopefully in, in 2021. Yes. Uh, it would be nice to, to see you again. All right, mate. Love you to catch up. Take care. Bye. Better myself and I proved it. I know the industry ruthless. I'm really a threat of nuisance. The Chevy a drop it is ruthless. Think I'm the one and I proved it. I know the industry ruthless. Think we're seeing the movies. It really ain't dropping out of cool. Look at me struggling right on the